You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Awesome. So today we're going to be reading from Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 10. If you want to turn with me there. Oh, I want to say thank you too to Brad for, for constructing this new pulpit or lectern or whatever. It's pretty fantastic. He's been planning on doing it for a while. But it wasn't until we actually made him officially a pastor that this showed up. So I don't know. I don't know if those two are coincidences or what. Okay, anyways. (laughs) I'm just kidding, Brad. Zechariah 9, 9 to 10. We're going to read through that. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. So just about 2,000 years ago, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy from Zechariah. On that day, less than a week before he died on the cross for our salvation, Jesus put God's prophetic plan into motion when he humbly rode a borrowed donkey into the city of Jerusalem. And the crowd who was gathered there for Passover, they saw Jesus they probably heard of, heard of this, this man who had done miracles and, and many amazing things. They might have heard that he was a descendant of King David himself. So when they saw him riding into the city, fulfilling this long-awaited prophecy, it's no wonder that they got excited. It's no wonder that they rejoiced and started chanting, Hosanna, which means save us. And at the same time, they laid palm branches, which are symbols of victory and triumph, so one of they laid those down at his feet and, and waved them in the air and cried out to God with praise and adoration, singing from the Psalms, glory to God in the highest at the sight of this coming king. A king they'd been waiting for for a long time. A king that had been prophesied over and over to come and lead them into freedom, into peace, into salvation. So this first Palm Sunday was, without a doubt, Jesus' triumphal entry, right? The moment when Jesus publicly proclaimed and revealed himself as the Messiah King. And again, the crowd rejoiced. Granted, judging by the way the rest of the week went down, the crowd most likely praised and pledged their allegiance to Jesus with misplaced expectations on that day. They were probably hoping and longing for an earthly king, you know, one to rid them of Roman tyranny and free them politically as a people. So it seems like they didn't get the full picture of what was happening. And, and it kind of reminds me of my Palm Sunday experiences when I was a kid. Uh, back then, I always thought of Palm Sunday as, as, as being one of the best church days, especially for someone who grew up in a more conservative church like I did, because it was always on that day that we, we didn't actually have to sit quietly in the pews 
but rather the, the Sunday school teachers would pass out palm, palm branch to each one of us kids, right? And, and we'd march up to the sanctuary doors, and as soon as, as, soon as the, the, the hymn Hosanna started, we'd, we'd get to walk around the sanctuary waving these palm branches around like it was this big party, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about. Um, in one of my kids' rooms, there's this big giant leaf. I wanted to bring it and wave it around, but uh, my wife talked me out of it, so... You don't get you don't get to see that, but um, but that was the best because kids love swinging stuff around. Like when they have something, they swing it around. Like I don't know why that's what they do. So as a kid, there's nothing better compared to boring church. This was so much fun, um, and I'm excited today as well because as our kids learn about Palm Sunday downstairs in Kids Gate, they'll also be making their own palm branches so they can come upstairs. And then during the last song, they're going to walk around waving them around too. So they get, they get to experience that. That's going to be awesome. And we're going to have fun with that. Um, but hopefully they grasp what it means more than I did, did as a kid. I mean, some of them probably won't. Some of them will just be like, whoa, this is awesome, like I did. But hopefully some of them will get it. Um, because, because again, as I look back, I, I got to admit that, that I really had no idea why I was doing that. And, and I mean, I'm sure the Sunday school teachers explained it to us. But I was probably more focused on the excitement of it and, and waving that branch around as fast as I could. I didn't, I didn't care what, what the purpose was. I got to wave a branch around. So, and that's it's kind of not unlike the crowd gathered around Jesus as he makes his way into Jerusalem. They, they seem to be caught up in the moment, in the excitement, with, without actually taking a moment to ask what it really means. They, they were blind to the reality of it because they expected something different. They, again, they, they wanted that day to be their new Independence Day, or at least the starting point of a political revolution. And we know this because of the palm branches. Back then and still today, even the, the palm branch for, for Judea and other Middle Eastern nations um, and Mediterranean nations, including Italy, right? That, that palm branch was a symbol of national pride, signifying victory triumph, and peace. The three things that they all wanted for their nation. Therefore, as they they placed the palm branches at the feet of Jesus, it's safe to assume that this was the crowd's way of proclaiming their love for their nation, their, their desire for victory over their captors, over the Romans, and their proclamation of allegiance to Jesus as the Messiah King who would do that for them, who would lead them to this victory. Of course, their actions also meant um, complete defiance against both King Herod and Caesar as well, which means that Jesus had every opportunity in that moment to use that crowd to incite a rebellion. He could have incited a rebellion in that moment. Even the Pharisees watching the spectacle expected something like that. John 12:19 says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. So they're saying, We're, we're losing here. We're losing here. Look. The world has gone after him. The world has gone after Jesus. And obviously that's an exaggeration. The world wasn't in attendance that day. But that expression tells us that the crowd was both large and ready to follow him. Jesus certainly could have taken that opportunity to start a revolt. But that's not what he was there for. Because even in that very hour, Jesus didn't make his way onto the earthly throne or take up a sword, or incite the crowd to rise up and run the Romans out of town. Instead, Jesus made his way into the holy temple, made a whip of cords, and ran the moneylenders and thieves out of God's holy presence. 
So it's an anticlimactic and confusing turn events from the crowd, I'm sure. Many of whom would be among another crowd later on that week, crying for the so-called king to be crucified at the cross. So right there in front of them was the Son of God, the, the King of Kings, the sacrificial lamb who would bring them eternal freedom and victory over sin. But they missed it. They were worshiping, yes, but not, not for who he really was, but for who they wanted him to be. And I think we're just as guilty as that crowd sometimes. We worship Jesus for who we want him to be, for what he, we want him to do, and not for who he really is, which gets us into all sorts of frustrations and, and trouble. But yet, what's amazing here is that even though the crowd was, was worshiping for, for the wrong reasons, Jesus still receives their worship. He still receives their worship. As, as he says to the Pharisees who were questioning him, if, if these don't worship me, the, the stones will. The crowd wasn't off base and shouting, Hosanna, which means, again, save us. Because Jesus had actually come to save them. They weren't wrong in waving and, and around and laying down their palm branches along his path because Jesus had come to be victorious and bring peace. Jesus had actually come to be their king, but they just didn't have the, the full picture of, of what that meant like we do today. They didn't realize that, that he wasn't there to take on an earthly crown. He was there to take on a crown of thorns. And he wasn't there to sit on the earthly throne of David, but of the kingdom of God. That he wasn't there just for the nation of Israel, but for everyone. He came to win victory over sin not Romans. He came not to take up arms, but instead to stretch his arms out at the cross. So yes, they were right in worshiping the Lord on this occasion, but, but he was, because he was and is worthy to be praised as the King of Kings. He is worthy to be praised. Though again, as we know, their worship would cease only days later, leaving, as Jesus said, only the stones to cry out. And on that note, the, the somewhat ironic thing, I don't know if that's the right word, ironic thing about the story, though, is that it seems like it was the Pharisees who actually grasped the symbolism here more than anyone else in that moment. Though they didn't embrace it, they were offended by it. They didn't like the fact that Jesus was receiving and, receiving and accepting the crowd's worship and praise. They didn't like the connotation. Because for Jesus to receive their praise was to admit that he was the Messiah King that had come to save them. And so this was blasphemy to the Pharisees. So in their anger and offense, they approach him. And Luke 19.39 says this, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, don't let them worship you as the Messiah, as the King, as, as the Son of God. That's, that's not right. That's not appropriate. It's, it's heresy. Tell them to stop. But again, this is how Jesus responds. He answered, verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If the crowd wasn't worshiping God for this moment, the stones would be crying out. But first of all, we can assume that this means that Jesus will be praised one way or another. 
because he's worthy of praise. His, his authority will be proclaimed because he's the Messiah King. He is the Son of God that saves us. He is the one who will die and rise again to conquer the power of sin and death in our lives. He is glorious and worthy, and nothing can quench or silence that truth. And again, even though the crowd was way off in their motivation and understanding, they were still right to worship and rejoice over him because even the stones would have cried out if they hadn't. Someone or something was going to proclaim his kingship in that moment. But I I want to take a step back and think about that phrase a little bit more because what does that even mean that the stones will cry out? Have you guys ever thought about that? What stones is Jesus talking about? And how would a stone even cry out? Well, the last time I checked, stones can't talk, right? Can they? Unless, has anyone ever heard a stone speak? That's good. None of you are crazy. So, I mean, again, the the typical interpretation of this passage is exactly what I mentioned earlier, that if we don't worship him as Lord and Savior... The rocks to our shame will. Because again, Jesus will be praised one way or another. And I think that's an acceptable interpretation of of what Jesus is saying there because the Bible does often speak of creation glorifying God. Psalm 96, 11 to 12 is one example. And it says, Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. So we see that. We see creation glorifying God. But yet, still, I think there's more to what Jesus is saying here. So if you wouldn't mind humoring me, um, I just want to take a second to, to think about it a little more. Because doesn't it seem kind of random that Jesus would just start talking about stones of all things? Why doesn't he say, you know, the grass will cry out or the fig trees will cry out or the clouds will form in such a way that it looks like me, right? Why doesn't he say anything like that? Why does he say stones? Stones don't speak. They don't sing. And more importantly, nothing Jesus does is random. So we can't just assume he just randomly said this out of the blue. There's got to be more to it. So I'd like to propose to you all this morning that there is more to this statement and, and to the symbolism of stones crying out than we often realize. And I've, there's two theories of what it means, and I'll, I'm not making these up. These are true theories, so I'm going to explain both of them to you. I'll start with the first theory here of what Jesus means when he's talking about stones crying out. So when it comes to rocks or stones, the Old Testament actually has a lot to say about them. A lot to say about them. In fact, in story after story, stones are symbolic, used symbolically, sometimes as a pillar to remember what God has done, or as a symbol of a covenant, or to make an altar, or of course, to build things like the temple or the city walls. Um, and one of the reasons stones were used in covenants and altars was because they signified something that's lasting and unchanging. For example, during one point in the Bible, Joshua makes a covenant with, with, with God's people, declaring that they will serve the Lord faithfully. And uh, after he does that, he grabs a big stone, he sets it up by a tree next to the sanctuary of God, and declares, 
Joshua 24:25 says, "Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that He spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God." So, in other words, if they if they ever rescind or disobey the covenant that they've made with God, if they fail to acknowledge God as Lord in their lives, the stone will always be there to cry out as a witness against them. And not literally, it's not actually going to cry out against them, but symbolically, right, as a reminder of their covenant, because the stone was there when they made the covenant. It'll be a reminder for them. In another story, after God's people cross the River Jordan and enter the Promised Land, God commands them to place a pillar of stones. And they're also there to be a symbolic reminder that it was God who rescued them and brought them out of slavery. In other words, whenever they forgot, as we humans often do, and start to think they accomplished their life of blessing and freedom in their own strength, the stones would be there to cry out as a witness against their pride and humbly remind them that it was God who did it. In another story, when Cain, in his jealousy, murdered his brother Abel, it was the earth and the rocks and the earth soaked in the blood of Abel that cried out to God for justice against Cain. And then as if to underline this idea of stones crying out as a witness against those who refuse to acknowledge and follow God, Jesus, as he's riding into the city on a colt, tearfully proclaims this warning to the people of Jerusalem. Luke 19:41 to 44. He says this as he's riding into Jerusalem. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, soon the scattered stones of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem will cry out, in judgment, and will be a witness against those who stubbornly missed out on what was happening on that first Palm Sunday, against those who chose not to follow God and worship Jesus as Lord. So it's pretty intense, right? This prophecy of Jesus, by the way, came to pass years later in 70 AD when the Romans, in response to a failed Jewish rebellion, surrounded the city of Jerusalem, destroyed it, tore down the temple, leaving it all in ruins. So, of course, those scattered and broken stones, which remained from the fallout of that destruction, lay there as a witness, as as proof, crying out against those who refused to believe and take warning and receive that peace that Jesus was bringing. So in light of Jesus' words here, and in the way stones were used in the Old Testament, it seems to make sense then that Jesus is drawing from that imagery, implying that if he isn't acknowledged as Messiah King, that if the people reject him and turn from their covenant with God, they're choosing judgment. 
the very stones in front of them, possibly the walls of Jerusalem or, or the temple, will cry out as a witness against their rebellion and pride. But his declaration doesn't, doesn't stop at simply being a warning of judgment. His imagery here also points to our need for the cross and his saving grace, right? Because he's calling them to worship him, lest the stones cry out against them. And this is summed up nicely for us in Hebrews 12, 24 to 25, when it says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So the blood of Jesus shed for us on the cross speaks a better word than Abel's. Whereas Abel's blood cried out from the ground as a witness against Cain for justice, Jesus' blood cries out for our salvation. So when Jesus says, if, if these don't worship, the stones will cry out, he's saying, just like this, this passage in Hebrews, he's saying, don't reject me. Don't refuse me. He's telling them that it's in worshiping him and acknowledging that he is our salvation, our peace with God, and our victory over sin and death. It's through believing in him by faith that we'll be saved. And if we don't, the stones will cry out against us. So this, I believe, is, is part of the message that, that Jesus had in mind when he said that. But there's another theory that I want to throw out to you as well. Because some would argue, and, and I like this idea, that's a little bit more harder to prove. But some would argue that, that when Jesus is talking about stones, he's actually prophetically referencing in that moment those who would experience his resurrection life and faithfully worship him in spirit and truth. But it's possible Jesus was talking about living stones, as Peter later calls them. It says in 1 Peter 2, 4-5, Peter says, as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter's talking about the church there, talking about us. He's talking about those of us who've experienced and have been renewed by the resurrection life of Christ, those that have had our hearts of stone or the hearts of flesh, right? Living stones being built up upon Jesus, the cornerstone. Matthew twenty-one forty-two. Then Jesus asked them, didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. Jesus is the cornerstone. So this could certainly be part of what Jesus is talking about when he says the stones will cry out, right? He could be saying that though many will reject him, there will soon be those who won't. That there will be living stones who will rise up in the name of Jesus and be built up on the spirit of, of, in the spirit of God to eternally proclaim his name and be witnesses to the world. And, and to underline this theory, let me let me present further evidence for it. So on the way into Jerusalem, next to the Mount of Olives, there's actually a big cemetery there that Jesus would have traveled past as he was riding on the colt. And in cemeteries, especially that one in particular, 
it's custom for Jewish people to place not flowers like we would when we visit, right? But but stones. They place stones, big and small, in no particular order, on on top of the gravestones of the dead whenever they visited. So it's theorized that they do this to symbolize, you know, the lasting memory of those buried there, you know, to honor them, or as a, or as possibly as a way to keep their souls in the grave until the Messiah appears. That's one theory. And I'm sure many people have different reasons as well as why they put stones there, but it's, it's Jewish tradition, and the point is that there are stones there. And of course, there's gravestones and tombstones as well. And yeah, there's pictures there. I didn't have to point that out to you. You guys probably saw that. Uh, so again, um, the cemetery is, is filled with stones, basically separating the dead from the living, right? The dead from the living. Um, so it's very possible then that as Jesus was entering the city, he looked over and upon seeing the stones piled up on the graves, that he might have pointed to them as a reference for the stones that would cry out. The implication there being that the dead, represented by these stones, would rise up from their graves and cry out as witnesses to his authority and salvation. Sounds kind of weird, right? But guess what? This very thing happened during Jesus' death and resurrection. Matthew 27, 51 to 53 says this, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And this is where it gets interesting. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So only days after the crowd is silenced, days after Palm Sunday, after Jesus had been rejected by them and sent to the cross, it turns out it was the stones that actually cried out as his witnesses. The split stones of the temple cried out in judgment against those who refused to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah King. And the living stones, those who experienced the power of Christ's death and resurrection, rose up from their graves and became as miraculous witnesses to his glory, to his grace, to the power of his resurrection, walking around Jerusalem and appearing to many. These living stones became evidence of the truth that Jesus was, who he is, was and is who he claimed to be on that first Palm Sunday the Messiah King, the Messiah King that has come to save us from sin and death and reconcile us with God. So whether or not Jesus was referring to those stones or something different, we we don't really know, right? Those Those are theories. They're good theories. They're powerful theories. But in the end, the message is still the same. Jesus will be praised because he's the king of kings. He's worthy of praise. His name will be made known. And on that end, we need to realize that, that, that we're the living stones who are called to do that today. That we've been equipped 
and filled by his spirit to be his royal priesthood, to be his witnesses on this earth. So let's do it. Let's make sure the world knows him. Don't let yourself become silenced by political or cultural pressure or fear of men or workplace rules or or whatever that might keep us from, from waving our proverbial palm branches around and proclaiming his salvation. As his living stones, let's make sure that as many people as possible don't miss out on who he is and what he's done. That he's won the victory, that he's paid the price for our salvation, that in him our hearts of stone have become hearts of flesh. That he's our king, our foundation, our cornerstone. As living stones, we're not meant to be silent. We're meant to proclaim this wonderful news that the Lord has accomplished, this good news that Jesus is king. And we're meant to praise him now, and we're meant to praise him into eternity. In fact, it says in Revelation that when Jesus returns, we'll be praising him as king and waving palm branches just like that first Palm Sunday. Though this time everyone there will be worshiping with full understanding and expectation. Revelation 7, 9 to 10 says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So let's not be silent. I mean, how could we? Right? If if Jesus has changed our life, how could we not praise him for, for that salvation and proclaim his name for the glory of God? As it says in Hebrews 13, 15, and as I close, through him then, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Let's pray. Jesus, as you came riding in on that colt, humbly and and lowly, entering into the city of Jerusalem, you proclaimed yourself as king. And though many didn't didn't understand or, or, or accept it, Lord, I thank you that you've revealed that truth to us today. And I pray that, that, that we would receive and accept you and follow you as our king because you are worthy. And I thank you that you're a king who laid down his life for us, who sacrificed everything for us, who shed his blood for us. And that your blood, Lord, cries out a better word than Abel's. That it cries out on our behalf for our salvation. For our justification. To cleanse us. To make us holy. So that we can be built up upon you, Lord, the cornerstone. And be living stones, your witnesses to this earth. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us the boldness and the joy to rejoice, to proclaim your name, 
in our lives and in our, in our places of work and to our families and to this city and to the world, Lord. Let your name be known because you are worthy to be praised. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.